I, I see myself as standing on the shoulders of, of giants. Listen to his words regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in preaching. The gospel is preached in the ears of all. It only comes with power to some. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless there, is, there were a mysterious power going with it, the Holy Ghost, changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls as preach to humanity unless the Holy Ghost be with the word to give it power to convert the soul. End quote. Church, I believe this with all my heart. As a matter of fact, I have staked my ministry on the truth that my life even, on the truth that the Holy Spirit will give true power to the preaching of His Word. At Grace Bible Church, we trust in the Christ-exalting preaching of the Word of God. Our second philosophy of ministry pillar is a commitment to verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture. We believe that God... We believe that God blesses the careful explanation of His Word. As such, we normally take a book of the Bible, starting in, in chapter 1, verse 1, and we preach until the end of that book, working to capture the author's original intent in each sermon. We believe that God blesses this. But having said that, we believe there is value in looking at Scripture from a different perspective. Sometimes it is fruitful to take a step back, and I like to call it maybe the 100,000-foot level or the 50,000-foot level, and look at Scripture through the lens of biblical theology. Said another way, we think there is great merit in tracing a doctrine or a theme through Scripture. Now, the Bible has many great themes. We could trace the biblical covenants or the promises of God. We could study God's holiness and other things that we could do. But last week I made the case that the kingdom of God is, in fact, the central theme of Scripture. Last week we took a bird's eye view of the kingdom of God in the Old and the New Testaments. That is to say, throughout the 66 books of the Bible. We didn't hit on every book, but we hit the high spots as we went along. And I showed, I hoped that I showed, that there is a consistent theme throughout Scripture of the kingdom of God from beginning to end. Now this week I want to dive a little deeper into the Old Testament to understand and to better understand Israel's expectation of the coming kingdom. And next week we're going to look at the New Testament to grasp the church's role in the coming kingdom. And in two weeks, in two weeks we're going to look, two weeks from today, we're going to look at how these two streams will converge in what I would argue is the kingdom of God. Now I recognize, and I said it earlier, this study will stretch us as a church. I know that some of you would rather stick to one passage, and I get that. I actually enjoy preaching verse by verse more than anything, but I trust with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be blessed, you will be blessed by this time if you do the hard work of engaging in the text. And if so, I believe that these sermons will be much more than a dry lecture on a topic fit only for the academy. I trust the Holy Spirit, and this goes ties back to the Spurgeon quote, I trust the Holy Spirit will light a fire in your bones to make the kingdom of God known. I pray that at the end of this series that you will know what Jesus meant when he prayed to the Father. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, last week I gave special thanks to several of my seminary professors. I want to add one more to that list this week. I'd like to add Dr. Bill Barrick to the list of men that I've learned or leaned heavily on in this series of sermons. So let me pray briefly for this sermon and, and for your hearing. Gracious Lord, we pray this morning as we embark again on this immense, immense study. May you give me strength and clarity. May you give the listener the ability not just to hear the words, but to perceive and understand. Father, we know that in the power of the Holy Spirit, that your word will not go come, come back that is void. In Christ's name, amen. On Thursday this past week, Not the Bee, which presented a report about the belief in God among the various generations. In 2018, representatives from each generation were asked to confirm, I know God really exists, and I have no doubts about it. According to the data, the silent generation, uh, 70% believed or was able to make that statement. Of the baby boomers, 59% are able to make that statement. Of Gen X, 62%. Of the Millennials, 44%. And of Gen Z, 33%. A deeper dive reveals that... with the mob, with, notice that, with the mob, at what you don't believe and why. Faith and traditional concepts of God are easy targets. These realities make our younger generations ripe for dissatisfaction with old things like church and organized religion and provoke a hunger for whatever strikes them as unique and authentic, which means, in truth, it isn't that the millennials and Gen Z don't believe in God. Get this. It's just that they have a, a hundred other things they worship as God, end quote. Now, I think that's a profound observation, and it reminds me of 
Romans 121, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was dark, darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, as much as I would like to believe otherwise, I believe our culture has been given over to the lust of our hearts to impurity. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather, rather than the creator. It, as a matter of fact, we are actively, actively worshipping and serving the creature rather, rather than the, the creator. Let me tell you the saddest part of that story, though. Many churches have bought into this lie. They claim to know Christ, they claim to follow Christ, but they have exchanged the truth about Christ for a lie. They won't endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they have accumulated for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they've turned away from the truth. And they've turned aside to myths. Myths, by the way, which are perpetuated on social media. Not everyone, according to our Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. He goes on to say, and this is Matthew 7, 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now I'm certain, as I stand here today, that none of you want to hear those words on that day of judgment. We want to know, we want to know and understand why our youth are turning from belief in God. And as much as I believe, and I agree with Peter Heck, that cell phones have had a negative effect, I believe there's an even greater culprit. You see, many churches are failing to teach the whole counsel of God. They refuse to teach the robust themes of Scripture. They preach watered-down sermonettes for Christianettes. Last week I made the case that the kingdom of God is the grand theme of Scripture. And if that is true, you would think that an understanding of God's kingdom plans would be clearly taught in churches. But I guarantee you, I would be, if I were a betting man, I'm not, but if I were a betting man, I would bet that very few churches in this city are preaching the kingdom of God this morning. It's just not something that's, that's taught. It's just not. I would argue that it is one of the more misunderstood doctrines in the Bible. And that's amazing. If it truly is the, the central theme of Scripture, how can, then, can it be one of the most misunderstood? Yet I believe it is. And that's the reason why we're taking time out of our preaching schedule to study this magnificent Topic. Now, briefly, last week we had five stops on what we called the kingdom trail. The first one was the creation mandate ratified. That's in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. We started in chapter 1 where we saw that God is the undisputed ruler over all of his creation. He has always been the ruler. He has always exercised authority. And this has never changed. And there's never been any exceptions to it. He has never let me make sure I underline, never delegated his universal rule. All mankind, all nations, even Satan and the demonic realm are subject to his sovereignty. P 
period, end of sentence. All right, you might say exclamation point, end of sentence. Satan and his demons cannot do anything, underline anything, outside of God allowing them to do it. We also learn from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God has delegated authority over the earth to man. Now that's, he has not delegated his universal authority, but he has delegated his, his authority over the earth. It doesn't mean that he's not still in control, but it means that he has given man to exercise, and he expects man to exercise rule over the earth to subdue it and to fill it. This takes us to the creation mandate ruin. In Genesis chapter 3, we saw that man failed to rule as God intended. God freely allowed, or allowed Adam to freely enjoy the fruits of the garden, yet he told Adam not to eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam disobeyed by listening to the serpent and his wife, and he ate from the forbidden tree. And that sin threw humanity and God's creation into a fallen state, introducing death as the primary enemy of man. And we see that later on. It says, and so-and-so lived, and then he died. So-and-so lived, and then he died. As God pronounced his curse on the serpent, he promised, though, to send a redeemer who would succeed where Adam had failed. According to Eugene Merrill, part of the reason God's kingdom has not yet come stems from, the fa- from fallen, man- fallen mankind's consistent antagonism to God's sovereign purpose for his own earthly kingdom, end quote. <coughs> this comes from the failure in the garden. The, last, the next thing we saw was the creation mandate reiterated. You see, God, God expects man to rule despite his failure. Adam failed to righteously rule, yet we saw in Psalm 8 that God has not changed his mandate for man to, to righteously rule the earth. Every man has, who has ever lived has failed to righteously rule, and we're going to see that very clearly today. Even godly men like David have failed to rule the world in righteousness. In truth, the world has been ruled by a series of unrighteous kings and governments, has it not? These failures, matter of fact, that's what we, that when we think of kings and kingdoms, that's what we think of, is unrighteous kings and kingdoms. These failures do not change God's expectation of man to righteously rule. They only reinforce our need for what? A righteous ruler. Hold on to that thought. We also looked at the creation mandate realized. Uh, I would argue that the Old Testament points from its very beginning points to this righteous ruler, the coming Messiah who would restore man's relationship with the Father. The New Testament Gospels give an account of that Messiah's first coming, our Lord Jesus. The, the epistles give instructions to the Messiah's church while we await the full inauguration of his kingdom. The epistles also present Jesus as the Messiah who is the rightful ruler of the world. He is qualified to rule by his perfect life, his suffering and death, and his resurrection from the dead. His ascension to the Father proves that he is the rightful ruler who is awaiting a future day when he will rule from the throne of David. We also saw the creation mandate refined. The book of Revelation presents Jesus as the Messiah who will return to rule the earth just as he has promised. As such, we see continuity from the beginning to the end. God placed man in the Garden of Eden to dwell with him, and in the future, man will dwell with God in the new heaven and new earth. 
man will truly glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Borrowing from the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism. Revelation 22.2 reveals that the nations will be there. Revelation 22.3 tells us that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in that place, and His bondservants will serve Him. All the host of heaven, all the host of heaven will recognize God's right to rule. In the words of, of Bill Barrick, an inductive study of the kingdom based on sound hermeneutical principles will show that the Lord's plan for His kingdom dominates history from the first creation to the new creation. The Old Testament predicts a coming earthly kingdom, a kingdom that will someday will be fulfilled someday through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and the one who fulfills the covenants of Scripture. Now, it's those covenants that we're going to work through today, by and large, to show you this continuity and how God is working in history to see His plan go forward. Now, we see the continuity in God's kingdom plan, so now I want to take a step back and dive deeper into the Old Testament. Today, as I said earlier, I want us to better understand the kingdom from the perspective of the Old Testament authors. I think that's incredibly important. In a sense, we'll be looking forward from the, from the Old Testament with Israel's perspective. Next week, we'll be looking forward from the New Testament from our perspective, the church's perspective. And in two weeks, we'll see these two streams unite in one, one glorious future together. In today's sermon... We're going to look at five critical views from the perspective of the Old Testament. So our first critical view is the complete failure of man. That's Genesis 4, chapters 4 through 11. Now we've established that Adam failed to carry out God's kingdom mandate in Genesis chapter 3. We also know that God promised a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. Now in Genesis 4, now what I recommend is, is that if you want to start at the beginning, so start in Genesis 4 with your Bible, and just work through, because what we're going to do is work through basically from, from left to right, we're going to work through the Scripture, and we're going to go really, really fast, but I hope that you will be able to keep up. I'll try to be as clear as I possibly can. But if you look at your text in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, now the man, that would be Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, I don't really have time to unpack this, but this verse could be translated, I have gotten or given birth to a man with Yahweh. Or, I have given birth to a man, Yahweh, in apposition, meaning that she's redescribing who she thinks she's given birth to. I'm not sure which one that it is, but I would argue that this verse shows that Eve had a messianic hope from the very beginning, that she understood that there would be a coming seed, a coming offspring who would, who would liberate them from their sin, who would put them back into the garden. And it makes sense that she would, right? She may have even thought that Cain was the seed of the woman who God had promised. Now, we know how that turned out, right? Cain murdered his brother Abel and was made to be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. He went out and he founded a city called Enoch, and his line filled the earth with evil, creating an evil kingdom upon the earth, which was an exact antithesis of what God had intended. So this evil line of Cain 
this evil line of Cain made a kingdom, but it was an, an evil kingdom. But and amid the, the kingdom, though, God provided a, continued to provide a ray of hope. In 426, the text says, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there, are, there were men in the midst of all this. There was always God's people. That's the point. In chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, a man named Lamech had a son. And according to verse 28, now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give rest, give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now I would argue that Lamech also had a messianic hope. And I would argue that he thought that Noah was potentially going to be that Messiah, that Redeemer, if you will. From this point forward, though, we see two different kingdoms on earth. We see God's people, and we see Satan's people. And for all the world, it seemed like that, that Satan's kingdom was going to proliferate, was going to overcome God's kingdom. But God always kept, always kept His people. He always kept His remnants even to this day, these kingdoms, these two kingdoms will be present, by the way, when, until Christ comes to set up His righteous reign. In Genesis chapter 6, so if you turn to Genesis chapter 6, man's sin had become so wretched and great that God was grieved and decided to wipe out man and creation. In Genesis 6-8, he sent a flood of waters over the face of the earth, but he saved Noah and his family through the flood in the ark. In Genesis chapter 9, after sending the flood to wipe out his creation, God started over with Noah. So it's, a, it's in effect, a recreation. So, so Noah comes, becomes a type of Adam, if you will. In chapter 8, verse 22, God promised that the seasons would not cease as long as the earth remained. In Genesis 9, God told Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, he, reiter he reiterated his kingdom purposes for, for mankind. It is in this chapter that we see the Noahic covenant. He promised not to destroy the world with, wa with the waters of the flood again. Now, it's, it's critical to note, though, it's critical to note, and according to verse 9, this is chapter 9, verse 9, God unilaterally meaning by himself, made this covenant with Noah and his descendants. Therefore, it was, an unconditional, it was an unconditional covenant. Therefore, we are still under that covenant today. I mean, we can see that, right? What happens when it rains? We see a rainbow, right? We see the rainbow in the sky. What happens, you know, every, every year we get, well, except in Florida, but we get summer spring, fall, summer, fall, spring, no, something like that. <laughs> let's, start at, let's start at the beginning. Winter, spring, summer, fall. We get that every year. And he's promised that, right? He's promised that that will never, never change. Genesis chapter 10 and 11. In Genesis chapter 10, we see the descendants of Noah. We also see the first mention of the nations. That's going to become incredibly important as we move along. In chapter 11, we see that they had the same language, and instead of filling the earth, they settled in one place. They also built a city and a tower to reach into heaven, trying to make a name for themselves. So God confused their language, and He scattered them over the face of the earth. Thus, God, let's be clear about this, God made the nations. 
According to 11, 9, chapter 11, verse 9, he called that place that they gathered Babel. You might also understand that to be Babylon. And, and that's again, represents God, satanic, man's evil kingdom. In later revelation, this name comes to represent man's evil attempt at building his unrighteous kingdom. So man wants his own way. Man wants to do his own thing. And that's always against God. That is, unless God steps in. Now, all of this raises some critically important questions. Where would the Messiah, where would the Redeemer come from? How could the nations come to know God, especially considering they were now scattered over the whole earth? I mean, this is a real problem. And they didn't speak the same language. And so the question is, what about God's kingdom plan? How is this going to come to fruition? Well, that brings us to critical view number two, the comprehensive faithfulness of God. You ever wonder why the Tower of Babel and Abraham story they collide, right? They're right, you know, chapter 11, chapter 12. Well, it is in that context that God begins to give the answer to these questions. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, God called Abram and promised he would make him a great nation. He promised to bless him, and he promised to make his name great, and, and he promised that he would be a blessing. And it says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God has now chosen Abram, and he's going to make him a great nation. And he's going to bless him. And it's critically important that, to see that God here promises, a, he promises land, he promises a seed, and he promises blessing. You should notice that God also intended to bless the nations through Abram. That's a critically important understanding that, that through Abram or Abraham later, he is going to, God is going to bless the nations. See, the nations are part of God's plan. That's the point. In Genesis 15, God reiterates his promise of land, seed, and blessing. And even though Sarai was barren, he, God would give Abram a seed. According to 15.6, Abram believed God. So he believed him that he was going to do these things. He especially believed him that he was going to give him a son, Isaac, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We see that, uh, that idea of faith throughout the Scripture, that, that it's an idea that, that when we believe God, when we believe His promises, He saves us. He, he gives us the righteousness, our, his, his righteousness, that is. Now in this chapter, chapter 15, we find that God again, unilaterally made this covenant with Abram. In other words, God himself guaranteed this covenant. Therefore, the Abrahamic covenant, as we call it, cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. Genesis twenty-two seventeen 17 gives the promise of a kingdom. If you look at Genesis 22, he says, it's verse 17, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. Your seed, again, this is kingdom language, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now, if you turn quickly over to Genesis chapter 49, what we have to understand is the rest of Genesis follows the progress of Abraham's seed. Ultimately, God took them into slavery in Egypt just as he promised Abram in Genesis 15. 
Genesis 49 records Israel, Jacob, Jacob, or Israel's blessing upon his son, sons. And in Genesis 49.10, God promises that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So the, the verse 10, this is, a, this is Genesis 49.10, reveals that there would be one who would rise specifically from the tribe of Judah to rule. Now this person, according to Israel or Jacob, was called to be called Shiloh. And notice that he will rule the peoples. Verses 11 and 12, just after that, indicate that his kingdom will be an incredibly prosperous kingdom. Now in Genesis 50... We're given a few more details regarding Israel's time in Egypt. In chapter 50, verse 13, Israel's sons, this is Jacob's sons, bury him in the promised land. Now, I want to make sure we point this out. This is a further indication that God would allow through his, would, would, that would follow through, that is, on his promise to establish his people in the promised land. You see, Jacob was actually buried there. Now, this raises a few more critical questions. When would God establish His people in the land? See, they weren't in the land at this point. What would be Israel's role among the nations? So, God is raising up this nation. So, what would be Israel's role among the nations? And you've got to understand, God had promised Abraham that, that in Him they, many nations would be blessed. So there's, a, there's an interplay between the nation of Israel and the rest of the nations. By the way, another word for the nations is Gentiles. Genesis, that leads us to well, one last question. When would the ruler come forth from Judah? That leads us to critical view number three. Critical view number three. The, the faithfulness or faithlessness, the conclusive faithlessness of a nation specifically the nation of Israel. Exodus 1-12 through records the fulfillment of God's promise to bring Israel out of Egypt. Now that was the first step in the process to establish them as He promised into the land. Exodus 19-24 through records what we call the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, which God made with Israel before He brought them into the land. This covenant was actually different than the first two. It's where we get the Ten Commandments. That's the Mosaic Covenant. This covenant was different from the first two because it was not unconditional. Again, we need to be careful to make sure we, we show this, is that the Noahic Covenant, unconditional. The Abrahamic Covenant, unconditional. The Mosaic Covenant was conditional. It depended upon Israel's obedience. The Mosaic Covenant laid out God's expectations for the nation of Israel as He tabernacled, as He dwelled among them. In 19, I think it's 19.5, I didn't write this down, I think it is, you can check me. God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. Now again, you see that among all the peoples. So there's still the idea of the nations. For all the earth is mine. And this is key. Verse 6. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which, that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Again, these verses indicate that God intended for Israel to be a kingdom and a holy nation. The Mosaic Covenant operated to show God's standard of holiness to Israel and to the rest of the nations. It was through this covenant that a holy God could dwell among His people. Now, Leviticus through Numbers records God's faithfulness even as the first generation of of Israel who came out of Egypt rebelled against Him. You see, they didn't trust His promises. They didn't trust that He was going to give them a land. They didn't trust His blessings. Even Moses, their leader, would not enter the promised land due to his disobedience. And his disobedience showed that even the most godly, so Moses' disobedience showed that even the most godly and humble man would ultimately fail to rule in righteousness. You see, he couldn't even rule righteously over a nation. How could he rule righteously over the whole earth? Deuteronomy 28-30 After the nations had wandered in the wilderness for 40 40 years, Deuteronomy records that Israel stood on the precipice of the entrance into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses reiterated the promise of a coming redeemer and a prophet who would arise from among them. Uh, that, That redeemer would be ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Deuteronomy 28-30, Moses pronounced blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So we just need to remember that we, as a reminder that the Mosaic Covenant was conditional upon Israel's obedience while the Abrahamic Covenant was un- unconditional. So in 28-30, he says, if you obey, these are the blessings. If you disobey, these are the curses. Now the rest of the rest of the Old Testament from that point forward then becomes a recording of what? The disobedience of a nation. And that starts in Joshua and, Joshua and Judges. Now, the book of Joshua actually records the contest, conquest of the land. That God had said, you will have the land, and, and Joshua went and he began to take the land. But it's critical to note that while Israel was largely successful in capturing the land, they never fully conquered it as God had commanded. The book of Judges, chapter 1, verses 19 to 26, I won't read it, makes it clear, though, if you want to go back and read it later, that Israel failed to occupy fully the land which God had promised Abraham. The book of Judges also makes it clear, (coughs) crystal clear, if you've ever read it, that Israel was spiraling, spiraling in sin. They, it, was, it went from bad to worse to worse than you can imagine. And just like Moses warned, when they disobeyed God, they were cursed. But in those times, and judges, so it's this up and down process, in those times they called out to God to deliver them, and He would send judges to deliver them from their oppressors. And Judges 21-25 perfectly describes the state of Israel, this, their state, during those days. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Literally, they did what was right in their own eyes, and believe me, that was evil. If it was, if it was something that was evil, they did it. 
In other words, the nation was far from the, the holy nation that God wanted them to be. They were a sinful mess. But despite their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. The book of Ruth shines brightly against the backdrop of the judges as God worked to preserve the Messiah's line through a Gentile Moabitess named Ruth. It's clear that even in the worst, even in the worst, God remained faithful. And He always had His remnant. And we see that brightly in the book of Ruth. 1 Samuel records Israel's desire for a king. In 8.5, Israel asked, at the, the nation of Israel asked Samuel, the last judge, I would argue, to appoint a king to judge them like the nations. In other words, they wanted a king like the kings of the other nations. They clearly rejected God as their king. They wanted a king in their own image. Therefore, God gave them a man named Saul. On the outside, he looked the part. He was tall and he was handsome. He was exactly what they wanted. Yet he utterly failed to righteously rule the kingdom of Israel. In chapter 13, Saul foolishly gave offerings before the Lord that God had not authorized him to give. In response, in 1313, Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of, your, of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and, ha and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, here's what we need to understand. That the people's, the people's choice for a king failed. So we have Moses who's failed, we have Joshua who has failed, we have now Saul who has failed, now we're getting to David. Now in the beginning, God blessed David's reign as king. God, David began to conquer Israel's enemies. The nation was fully united under his rule. He was truly a man after God's own heart. But David ultimately proved that he was not the, the promised Messiah. I would argue that had he not sinned with Bathsheba, that he would continue to, to conquer. But that's not what happened, is it? In 1 Samuel 11, it records that David sinned greatly against the Lord. He lay with Bathsheba, even impregnating her. He deceived her, her husband Uriah and tried to cover his tracks. He was deceptive. And when that didn't work, David had Uriah killed on the field of battle. He murdered him. He didn't do it with his own hands, but he had it done. He was just as guilty, right? To say that David acted treacherously would be an understatement. You see, David's sad episode with Bathsheba and Uriah clearly showed that he was not the promised Messiah. He was not the Redeemer to come. Again, just like Moses, just like Joshua. This incident showed that the well, just like Moses in, in this case, this incident showed that the godliest man alive, a man after God's own heart, would fail to righteously rule as God intended. Now, First and Second Kings record the division of Judah and Israel with the ultimate failure of the succeeding kings to rule in righteousness. I mean, some of them just didn't even try. 
I mean, they would talk about this king, and he did evil in God's eyes, right? I mean, he would talk about this, and there were some kings in, the, in Judah, very few, but there were some kings in Judah that, that actually did do right before God, but even they had their failures. Now, this raises further questions regarding God's kingdom plans. Considering the failures of Moses, Joshua, Saul, and David, was there anyone who could rule the nation in righteousness? And if there was no one to rule the tiny nation of Israel, let's face it, the tiny nation of Israel, who would qualify to righteously rule the entire of God's creation? Now, at this point in the narrative, only David was qualified because he was from the tribe of Judah, but he miserably failed. So how would God fulfill his promises to Abraham of a land, of a seed, and of a bless of all of blessings and how would how would the family of Abraham how would they bless the families of the earth and considering their disobedience to the mosaic covenant is there a future for them is there a future for them this brings us to critical view number 4 the clear foreshadow of righteous rule turn to second samuel chapter 7 Now, as we have progressed through this, we have raised several critical questions. Now, having raised them, I want to start, I, I want to start giving us some answers. And I believe a big piece of this puzzle can be found in 1 Samuel 7. Now, in that chapter, in that chapter, the second, is it 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7, sorry. In that chapter, David planned to build a temple for the Lord to dwell to replace the tabernacle. And in seven, chapter 7, verse 3, Nathan the prophet told, initially told David to do all that is, is in his mind. I mean, he's a godly man, uh, that, that he would be able to build this, this uh, temple. But the Lord had other ideas, and he came to Nathan at night, that night, that very night, I think the text says, and he, and he said, no. He, he wouldn't allow David to build the temple. At, look at 2 Samuel verse 7, verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, 8. It says this, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastor, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, gone and, I've, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, verses 8 through 11 reiterate, reiterate God's promise to plant them in the place He had promised. At that time, at that time that He would plant them, now, um, remind you, this is under David. So David has already, he's united Israel, but he's speaking, the Lord is speaking of a time in the future. And it's at that future time that they will not be afflicted. 
He promised to, to bless them and to give them rest. Now look at verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, he's speaking to David, I will raise up your descendant after you, and he will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever, before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, let me set this in context. This is prior to David's sin with Bathsheba. So he's promised him that his throne and his house would endure forever. Now, this is a prophecy given to Nathan by the Lord. This prophecy is an example, or I would argue this prophecy is an example of what we call prophetic foreshortening. Prophetic or telescoping is another way to put it. In other words... Nathan has two different descendants in view. One near and a far one. The near one is his son Solomon, who would rule over the nation after David's death. And there would be relative peace during Solomon's reign. I think verse 14 depicts his reign. But in verses 13 and 16, this prophecy speaks of a future king who will sit on David's throne forever. In verse 16, I want you to notice that David's house and kingdom will be established forever. Now, again, we know from 2 Samuel 11 that King David would not physically, he would not rule from his throne forever. Neither would Solomon. Neither would Solomon. Or his son, or any of his sons after him, except for one. Except for one. Ultimately, this prophecy would be ultimately fulfilled in one future descendant. Now, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, and I meant to read this before I started, I got ahead of myself. In Acts chapter 2, we read Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And in that sermon, he clearly says that Jesus... The Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and He is the one who will sit on the throne of David. Peter says that Jesus is the son of David that's being talked about in 2 Samuel 7. This promise will be fulfilled, but much more must occur before it comes to pass. According to Peter, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus is the one who would rule his people in righteousness. He is the Shiloh from the tribe of Judah. But the question remains. The question remains. So we've, we know who the Messiah is. The question remains, what about his people? What about Israel? What about Israel? That's a big question. Let's look at critical view number five. The clarifying faith of a new covenant. Turn to Jeremiah 31. 
Jeremiah 31. <clears throat> Turn to 31.27. There's much, so much more we could look at. And we've covered so much territory this morning. I know you know that. But I want to give you a, a glimpse to the, uh, of the answer to this question. Jeremiah 31, 27. Behold, the days, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Now let me stop and ask you a question. Who will the Lord sow with the seed of man and the seed of beast? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Look at verse 29. In those days they will not say again, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, verse 31, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the church. Doesn't say that, does it? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Again, who will God make this covenant, the new covenant? Who will he make it with? Israel and Judah, correct? Verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day which in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You see, remember what I said about the Mosaic covenant? What was what was clear about the Mosaic covenant? It was conditional, conditioned upon their obedience. The new covenant is unconditional, just like the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the church. No, it's not what it says, is it? I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write, I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be what? They shall be my people. So, with the new covenant, God will put His law on the heart of His people. The heart of His people, Israel. The heart of His people, Judah. And He will be their God. Again, we have to take careful note. He's speaking about the house of Israel. Verse 34. They will not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. You see, God promises to forgive their iniquity, and He will not remember their sin. Again, the Lord is speaking to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And the question we have to answer is, has this happened? Has it ever happened? And if we're honest, we'd say no. It's never happened. It hasn't. Look at verse 35. 
Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by, for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. My question is, has that happened? Has that fixed order ever been changed? No. You see, this depicts God's unconditional promise to the nation of Israel. And I'm amazed, I'm amazed at how God brings in aspects of the created order in, this, in these verses. And he also brings in echoes of the Noahic covenant, which fixed the order of the seasons. And as if that's not enough, look at verse 37. You get, I think you should be getting the point, but look at verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all of the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. The Hubble telescope, how far has it reached in terms of what it can see? Not even close to the end. The heavens cannot be measured. The, how deep, what's the deepest well we've ever dug? The foundations of the earth can't be searched out. So, do you think that God will cast off the offspring of Israel? The answer has to be no. According to that prophecy, God has a future for the nation of Israel. We have to reckon with that. We have to reckon with it. Zechariah promises in Zechariah 10, verses 8 through 12, I will whistle for them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them. They will be as numerous as they were before when I scattered them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries, and they with their children will live and come back. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. Now, I've pounded this, but if we apply a literal grammatical hermeneutic to the passage that, I have, that we have studied this morning, then you would have to agree there is a future promised for Israel. As a matter of fact, you would have to work hard in the Old Testament to find the Gentiles in the God's prophetic plan. I'm not saying it's not there. I've pointed it out that along the way, the nations, right? We're the nations. We're the Gentiles. But it's more clear that he has a plan for Israel than he does for the Gentiles. From an Old Testament perspective, and that's what we're looking at today, the question is not whether there is a future for Israel. The question is, what about the future of the Gentile nations? That's the question. That's the question Israel was, was asking. In, 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 in Acts 2.39, specifically the apostles, in Acts 2.39, Peter acknowledged that the Gentile nations would be included in the new covenant promises. In 2.39, he says, for the promise was for you and your children. You know who that is? He's speaking to the Jews. It's for you and your children. And for all who are far off, you know who that is? That's us. It's Gentiles. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I think this is the reason the Apostle Paul refers to the church as a mystery in Ephesians 2 and 3. The question is, 
Can God bring all that He has promised to pass? The bigger question is, how big is your God? How big is your God? Church, we live in a world of turmoil where it looks more and more like the enemy has triumphed. But we should see that in the pages of Scripture. We saw that with the line of Cain. We saw that in the evil, uh, the evil uh, response of Israel and their disobedience. We've seen that since then when Israel has been scattered and uh, Gentile kingdoms have arisen, have arisen, and most of them have been evil king- kingdoms, have they not? If I interpret my Bible correctly, things will proceed from bad to worse. Yet God still rules from His universal throne. That fact has never changed through all of this. He will bring His promises to pass. Right now, Christ Jesus is ruling at the right hand of the Father. He is awaiting one day that He will return to set all things right on this earth. And I believe, according to the Bible that I'm reading, that both Jews and Gentiles will reign with Christ in the future. And that it is in Christ that He will save His people in the work of Christ. Now, we will continue to answer the question of how these things come together over the next two weeks. Until then, I want to remind you that the kingdom of God truly is at hand. The Lord Jesus will return in judgment. He will set up His righteous rule. The question is, are you ready? It's a personal question. We've looked at this big picture, right? This big picture of what God is doing. The question that you have to answer, are you ready? Are you ready for His return? Are you in Christ? Have you... Turn to Him in saving faith. Have you believed that in His, uh, His perfect life, His sin-atoning death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, and His ascension to the Father, do you truly believe that He reigns today from the, the throne of God? Have you, like Abraham, believed God? Do you believe that He truly is King? And could return at any moment. And don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Your soul may be required of you this very night. Don't wait. Turn to Him now. Turn to Him today. While there's still time. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again. Lord, we've covered a lot of territory. We've seen this at a, at a high level, a high view. Lord, I pray that this time would help our people here at this church put together their Bibles and understand their Bibles. Understand what you are doing, what your purposes are, and what you will do in the future. Father, I thank you this morning that we could look at your people, the nation Israel. Next week, Lord, as you know, we plan to look at the church and our role in all of this. And in two weeks, we're going to see, Lord, this glorious future where those two streams come together, uh, where you tear down, where you fully tear down the dividing line and 
the nation of Israel will rule among the nations as you intended with the Lord Jesus at the helm, sitting on the throne of David, righteously ruling as you intended. What a glorious future that awaits us. As we look forward to that future, to the new heavens and new earth, may we live before the throne today, understanding and praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.